Welcome to the broadcast of Riverside Church in Princeton, North Carolina. Riverside Church preaching Christ and Him crucified. For more information, check out our website at www.riversidefwb.com. Open up to the book of 1 Samuel. If you remember the last time we met together, we were in the book of 1 Samuel. The reason I'm asking to reach for your Bible and not a self-help book or not some book that's written with poems or something that's, a, something that's, a, something that's written by a, a local man or someone who's a, a philosopher or somebody who just um, writes about dreams or even fantasy. The reason we choose the Bible here at Riverside is because it is a reliable Bible collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of prophecy. They are divine, not human in origin. At Riverside, we always go over the five solas. And it just so happens today, I'm wearing the man who helped lead the Reformation. No, this is not Christopher Columbus. And those who are listening by podcast, I'm wearing a t-shirt with um, Martin Luther on it. Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, he was not trying to break from the Catholic Church, but he was a reformer. He wanted to make things right. He always spoke about sola scriptura. That means the Bible and the Bible alone is our highest authority, not just in our church. Church, but in our personal life. He also talked about sola fide, a Latin phrase that means faith and faith alone, that we believe in something, have confidence in something, and trust in something. And that something is not a something, but a someone. It's sola Christos. It's a Latin phrase that means Christ and Christ alone. We trust and believe and have confidence in Him. And when we trust and have confidence in Jesus Christ, He bestows upon us sola gracia, a Latin phrase that means grace in grace alone. It's only by grace that we're saved. Amen, somebody. It's only by grace that we even go to heaven, not by our works, least we should boast according to Ephesians. It's only by grace in grace alone. And all of that culminates in sola deo gloria, a Latin phrase that means for God's glory and His glory alone. That's the reason you do what you do, whatever it is that you do. You do it for God's glory. Whether you're a student, you go to school for God's God's glory. Whether you're working on the job, grinding it out day after day, you do it for God's glory. You're a family man or part of a family unit, you do it for God's glory. If you're single, you do it for God's glory. You do it all for His glory. In our time, in our society, people don't know why they're here. They forget that we're created in the image of God. They have no reason to be here. So they wander through life like a big, big red balloon floating over the countryside with no anchor, no purpose. But I want to tell our church the reason we are here is not just to worship God here on a midweek service, but to serve Him all our days and exalt Him for God's glory and His glory alone. Amen. If you would, grab your Bible, like I said earlier, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. The last time we got together, we heard and saw and we lived the incidents where Ichabod showed up. Ichabod was the baby, the grandchild of our beloved Eli, the unfaithful high priest during this time. If you remember, Eli fell over backwards after hearing about the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant. And do not, don't you remember, I'm sure you do, that his unfaithful sons who were lay servants there at the temple, well it was the tabernacle. See there's a difference between the tabernacle and the, the temple and we'll get to that. But at the, at the tabernacle or the tent of God, there the two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were unfaithful to God. They considered God 
a, a superstitious uh, relic. The Ark of the Covenant, they considered as if it was nothing. They did not consider the holiness of God and adhere to God. That shows us that people can go to church their entire lives and not even adhere to God. Not even, uh, even consider the words of God, the oracles of God. They might consider it as equal as Aesop's fables or considered as equal as the crossword puzzle in their local newspaper. They would just say these are old adages that people adhere to. These are just superstitious words. That's how Phineas and his brother considered the the statutes of God and the commandments of God. And they did not consider the Ark of the Covenant important at all. Now we begin chapter number 5. After the passing of Eli, Ichabod is now born as his mother dies and his grandfather dies and his father dies. Now Ichabod, the very word of Ichabod means God has departed of His glory. And that's the, the name of some churches, not in our community, spiritually speaking. They don't believe in the power of God. They don't believe that God reigns forevermore. That I don't have to be afraid of anything. That He has securely saved me and set my feet on a solid rock when all around me is sinking. They do not believe in the power of the gospel anymore. They don't believe that God saves sinners anymore. The church might look magnificent. They might have wonderful facilities. They might have a professional behind the pulpit. They have people in the parking lot waving you in with smiling faces. But they do not believe in the power of God anymore because they're drawing people together for a rock concert or drawing people together to go fly fishing. They're drawing people together to crochet. There's nothing wrong with those things. But you can gather people with like-mindedness and try to bring them together to bring forth a group to show how how successful your church is, but the power of the gospel goes beyond borders. It goes beyond age. It goes beyond color. It goes beyond those things and it unites people from all tribe, tongue, and nations under the banner of Jesus Christ. The gospel still works. Gospel preaching is rare in this day and even in our day. Amen. Somebody. But let's go look. Has God forsaken His people? Is Ichabod the name of every church in our community? No, we know for certain that it's not. The gospel is adhered here at Riverside and other churches. The gospel is still preached and God is still working. God is still saving. Let's study together. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter number 5. How does God deal with the enemies of God's people? The Philistines. At this point... It's almost as if God worked it out. We all know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control of all things. But we also know that God will go on a grand tour. It's like a rock concert tour. That You know where the rock concerts, they go to different towns and different communities on a tour to rock the town. Well, it's almost as if God goes on tour to the Philistine nation. And what He does is exhibit His power, His sovereignty, His grandeur, His majesty. That's what God does here. He does it in the face of His enemies. And now let's see how He deals with the enemies of God's people. In 1 Samuel chapter number 5, when the Philistines captured the ark, the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now, remember in the last chapter, Ebenezer is the place where they captured. They captured the ark. But we didn't study why they call it Ebenezer, but we'll see that in chapter number 7. It depends on how good you are tonight 
And how attentive you are. And how good you listen and receive the words of God. Because that would dictate on how hard the ground is until I have to plow. Or the Holy Spirit dips his blade deep within the soils of your heart. And turns the soil to implant the word of God. So we're going to go at the pace that God allows tonight. We might get to chapter 7. I did tell you over the phone call, read into 7. We might get there or we might not. It's all in God's hands. But we look here at Ebenezer and Ashdod. In verse number 2, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Many people do this in their own lives. I'm not even going to talk about churches yet, but they have idols in their own lives. Something they have established that they believe this is what's infinitely valuable. This is what is most important in my life. In the temple of our own hearts, we set up all kinds of idols. Yes, they can be good things. They can be our grandchildren. They can be our jobs. They can be our 401ks, our retirement funds, our careers. It can be our vanity. It can be our reputation. We set things up on the thrones of our heart and consider that most importantly and we put God beside them. We read this and say, how foolish of them. Do they not know who God is? But let us examine the temple of our own hearts. Who is seated on the throne? Who's calling the shots? If you were to pull back the veil of the Holy of the Holies of your own heart, who would be there? Would it even be you seated on the throne? You are the king of your domain. You rule and reign. You are sovereign in your life. You're autonomous. That means the rules don't apply to you because you make the rules. Here we see the foolish people putting the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God beside Dagon in His temple. If I know anything about God, He will not sit shoulder to shoulder with anyone except God. That means he He sits shoulder to shoulder with His Son Jesus because He's seated at His right hand. Which means Christ is God, but Dagon is not God. In your own heart, who is seated shoulder to shoulder to your God? Who's on equal ground with Him? Is it you? Is it your spouse? Is it your denomination? Is it your church seated shoulder to shoulder with God? Is it even your government? Ooh, all right now, preacher, don't get political. Now let's get biblical. Amen. Is it your government? Is it the Bill of Rights? Is it the is it the is it the Constitution? Is it your your rights to carry arms? What is it that you find your identity in? Is it your is it your gender identity? Is it your is it your sexual identity? What is equal? What is your identity? What is on the throne? What tells you who you are and what you are? Here we see they take. The Ark of the Covenant, which is God's presence, and seats it beside Dagon. I don't know. Maybe these Philistines thought the more gods they have, the better off they are. Because they were, they were the kind of people to say, Hey, if we pray to this God, this God, hey, we're doing pretty good. The odds are on our favor. If we pray to the God of the field, He'll bless the field. And if we pray to the God of the rain, it will rain on the field. And there our harvest would be outstanding. So maybe they add it to the collection of their temple in Dagon. Or maybe they put the Ark of the Covenant beside Dagon. Because around this time, let us not forget, it's about 40 years at this point that Samson had just been killed. Or Samson gave himself up to destroy these Philistines. At this point, they brought in Samson in chains and he entertained them as if he was in an arena. 
And now they have to have another relic to say, we have overcome the Hebrews. Let us bring in the Ark of the Covenant and put it at the footstool of Dagon to prove to everyone that we are superior and our God reigns over the God of the Hebrews. Maybe, I don't really know, but I do know the text tells us that Dagon is there and the Ark of the Most Holy God is there. They put it beside him in the house of Dagon. In verse number 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fell on his face, downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Through the night, the sovereign, most holy God, I don't know, I don't say, I, don't, I won't dare. It wasn't written. But Dagon... The immovable and immobile statue. Now, let me describe Dagon. Dagon, if you remember, we spoke about last time we came together who the Philistines were. They're the people of the sea. They came from the ocean. Remember, they came from Crete and those islands there in the Mediterranean Sea. And they came and they come into the land and they're pressing against the people of God. And they're battling the borders of God. But they were put there for a place because sometimes God will bring an enemy out of the woodworks just so you'll lean upon Him all the more. Amen? An example will be sometimes you'll face sickness and that'll cause you to pray a little more. Sometimes somebody, a family member, will press you to cause you to pray a little more. Sometimes affliction and worry, anxiety, trouble comes our way that calls us to lean upon the graces of God. And the Philistines are a chess piece on the board of God's world. It's His story is what we say here at Riverside. Here we see that Dagon is their God. And He's half mermaid, He's half fish, and He's half man. How ridiculous that is. We read in, I believe it's Isaiah chapter number 4, where the man goes into the woods. I believe it's uh, Isaiah chapter 14. He goes into the woods. He chops down a tree and he takes the tree into his home and he cuts the tree up and carves a a graven image to it and puts it on his mantle. Then turns and takes the rest of the log, cuts his food over it, and then turns and prays to the image that he just created. It's kind of being facetious. Don't tell me God don't have a sense of humor. When he had Isaiah penned that, he said, look how dumb you are. Look how ridiculous you are. Worshipping in an image of your own hands. When we worship idols, no, 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 don't get me wrong. I know we're all, uh, we're all educated now. <laughs> we're all advanced in the old traditions. We've gone beyond those old, archaic, ancient idols of carved images. No, no. Now our, our gods are like our cell phones, our little cell phones. We worship them. We, we hold them in our hands and we flip through them and we scroll through their newsfeed. Our gods now look like homes, whether there's something we've spent our entire lives investing in and we work for that notoriety. Our jobs can be our idols. Things that we fashion with our hands. How foolish of them in the Old Testament to create created gods with our hands. No, we're not like them at all. God send us a godly man to pinpoint and pull back the shades of our conscience to see if we have any idols in our own lives. Yes, you can even make an idol of your little foo-foo poodle in your home. Fufu Poodle, cutesy or whatever you name her, might be the only reason you wake up every morning. No, Christ should be the reason you wake up every day. Your grandchildren might be the only reason you wake up. No, Christ should be the only reason you wake up every day. When you take those beautiful children and you put them up on a pedestal to honor 
Most assuredly, they will fall off that pedestal and they will be broken. No child can bear the weight of being deity, a God. Worship the one true God and Him alone. Don't fashion yourself a idol. Oh, well, my Jesus is my homeboy. That's a phrase that people use. He laughs at the same jokes as me. He, he winks at my sins. That's an idol you fashioned in your mind and created an image of God. That is not God. And you worship that and not the God of Scripture. Beware. Study the God of Scripture. Know who He is and what He's like. And know that He is holy. He's not laughing at that dirty joke. He does not turn his head at your leering eyes of lust. He is not okay with your gossip. He is holy. But we want our idols. Here we see that this idol that was shoulder to shoulder, this merman is what they call him, they, he was seated, sitting shoulder to shoulder with the ark, but when they woke up in the morning, he's on his face before the ark. If you ever need an object study or something tangible to look at to show what God thinks of other gods, notice those other gods are lowercase g because David even said, Who do I have in heaven but you? There is no other gods that you can pray to. There is not the God of the north wind or the south wind. There is no God of the ocean. There is only one true sovereign God. And yes, you might believe we are narrow-minded for believing that Jesus says, I am the way, the only way to get to heaven. But we believe that ourselves. Whatever we know, hey, you want to call me? You have to dial a certain sequence of numbers and you might get me or you might get my voicemail. You, but you can certainly text me. But you must dial that number exactly to answer, for me to answer. What do you mean, preacher? Jesus said, I'm the only way to get to heaven. There is no other way. But like us, we want other ways. We want to earn our way to heaven. We want to tithe our way to heaven. We want to, we want to volunteer enough that God has to let us into heaven. Jesus says, I'm the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Today we smash our idols and we serve Christ in Him alone. Dagon is on his face before God to be a symbolic image for the people of Ashdod to say, there is only one God. There is only one who reigns over heavens and the earth. There is only one. And we need a new revelation in our church just here at Riverside or even in our personal lives and the universal church to know that our defender is not the Bill of Rights because they can rip those up tomorrow. Our defender is not our ammo stashes that we have hidden in our house. Our defender is not the guns that we have because we're Americans. Our defender is not... The Constitution. Or the tanks that guard our borders. Our defenders not found in the White House. Our defenders are not found at the local uh, armory. The American Legion or, or the Air Force that are, flies over our heads. Our defender is found in Christ who defends His church, protects us, and keeps us. Nations come and fall, but He reigns forever. Amen, somebody. So whatever idols you have, Look at them in the light of it all. I use this analogy quite often. We see here that they go in and put Dagon back. Hey, hurry up before anybody gets in here and sees our God laying on His face. They put Dagon back. I'm sure throughout the week they'll have to go in and dust their God. He's getting a little dusty. We've got to dust our God. 
But I read in the book of Genesis where our God reached down and scooped into the earth, got a fistful of dust, breathed in it, and He became a living soul called Adam. That's our God. We don't have to dust Him because He's old. And yeah, they call Him the Ancient of Days. That doesn't mean He's old. That just means He's been around for a long time. He'll be around a lot longer after you're gone. He's God. Here Dagon is on his face. And they rose early and the next morning that he was falling downward. They should have done what Dagon did. These Philistines and Ashdod, they should have fell on their face before God and repented of their idol worship. What about you? Will you be like this dumb, can't see, can't hear, can't speak statue? Because you always become what you worship. If you worship idols who can't see, you'll become spiritually blind. If you worship idols that can't hear your prayers, then you will become mute. If you worship lifeless idols, you'll become lifeless. No doubt you'll walk around and you'll seem full of life, full of joy, soaking up all the joys that this world and this life gives you. But spiritually, you'll be dead before God. They come and they take Him They put him back in his place. Today, if there's an idol in your life, take it from its place and put Christ there. Really examine your heart. What keeps you? What gives you hope? What holds you? Not a false gospel. I don't tell you. I've been here five years and you cannot pull from our podcast and our history online of a single time where I told you come to Jesus and life will be easy. Come to Jesus and you'll never get sick. You got to tithe. And you know, I can write, I can jive and all that stuff too. But I tell you the truth. Come to Jesus and it might get harder. Come to Jesus and you'll suffer persecution. But Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. But what idols are in your life? Tear them down. Pull them out. Smash them and put Christ in His rightful place. As the reason you're here. Yes, we make good things. Our children, our 401k, our money, our careers, our reputations. Those things are good. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we take a good thing and make it a God thing, that's a bad thing. Put Christ on the throne of your life. Smash whatever idol is. Be honest with yourself and before God today. You don't have to tell the preacher. But be honest with God. Here, Lord, in the temple of my heart, I have not deemed you as essential, as the most important thing. And Lord, I clear the stage today of all the idols and I place you here. You are most important. I will adhere to your commandments. I will do what you command me to do. I will live solely for you. So they go and put him back in his place. But in verse 4, But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant. Here we are again. Dagon's back on his face. Oh, but God puts an exclamation point here. In the head of Dagon. And both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. They wake up and their God is headless and handless. Well, it just so happens he was already that way, but they couldn't see it. God took off his head to prove a point as the torso lays before the Ark of the Covenant, the holy presence of God. He was making a point to that city. You will think the priests 
But say, this God must be greater than Dagon. We must serve Him and Him only. But no, as you heard me say Sunday after Sunday for the last five years and seven years before that on television, week after week, the same gospel that melts the heart of ice also hardens the heart of clay. When I preach the gospel, it will have one or two effects. It will break you asunder and you will be torn apart and be broken before God or it will harden over and say, whatever. No, the people of Ashdod, instead of looking at these signs of a great God, they start a tradition. They start superstition. Instead of repentance, And crying out to God to forgive them of their sins, they go and add to their own religion. And verse number 5, This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshing hold of Dagon in Ashtar. To this day, the writer, which is probably 1 Samuel, tells us in chapter number 5, to this day, whenever the high priest would come into the temple, they would skip over the threshold. They would jump over it. They would never touch it. It was superstition. For this is where our God was headless and handless. This is where His hands and heads were failed. You would think that they would repent. But a heart that's set on sinning will always find a way to sin. A repentant heart will be broken and torn asunder by the words of God and repent every time. Where do you find yourself today? Do you find yourself superstitious, believing that God will bless you just because you came to midweek service tonight? That God's in heaven with a clipboard and said, yep, He showed up. Check mark. Check all the boxes and now you're good for the week. No, are you so living in such a way that pleases God? Yes, the preacher can see that you're here tonight. He might be, hey, I'm glad you're here. But are you living in such a way that it pleases God? These superstitious people, instead of repenting, added to their lives. Some people use God as if He was just an accessory. Something to add to their life. To to add flavor. Somebody might go to Walmart, pick up a new spice, just to add a new flavor to their repertoire and their spice rack. Just to add a little flavor and a flair to their life. That's how they treat Christ. Well, some people... They live and breathe because of Christ. Don't get me wrong, they sin. Oh, they sin greatly. Like David, they sin. But when we sin, don't forget we have an advocate with the Father. A mediator. One who deviates grace towards us. Oh, that's so good. Don't get me started on grace. But let's continue. The threshing floor, the threshing hold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. That means they continue to do this. Instead of repenting, they add to their superstition. Then in Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 9, God says He will strike them down. Those who tread over and skip over the threshing floor of Dagon. This idol that had no power to stop God from utterly castrating Him. Taking His head off and His hands to prove that He could not ball up His fist to fight off Almighty God. He could not even have any knowledge and understanding because He was a mere statue. God caused Him to be headless and handless. This is a declaration from this pulpit here at Riverside. There is one true God who is full of knowledge. There is one true God who knows all things. That means He's not surprised when you come across troubles in your days. 
He's not in heaven going, all right, plan B, we got to figure this thing out. I didn't see that coming. God never has an epiphany. An epiphany means we, oh, you're surprised or you come to yourself, you realize something or you learn something. God never has an epiphany. He knows everything. All the time, always, any, anytime, every time. He's full of wisdom. And His hands are full of power and might. He proved that because we hold His book here. The adversaries, they've gone against God's Word who have tried to destroy God's Word. And here still His Word is proclaimed. We serve a God who understands and a God who sees and knows all things. His hands will not be thwarted. It will not be slapped and said, what are you doing? Like we slap away a two-year-old's hand from reaching something dangerous. Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. He reigns forevermore. His dominion has no edges. It has no borders. He reigns over everything. He is God. So Christian, why do you fret? Let's look at this thing logically. Why do you worry? Why are you full of anxiety? Why are you heavy laden? Why do you feel like you are in chains when you're a child of God? He has set you at liberty. Set you at the Master's table. Adopted you in. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. So why do you have restless nights? Is it because you're prayerless? Is it because you're not on good terms with Him? Or is it that you don't believe Him? Or that you're leaning on other gods? Do you trust that check that comes in the mail every, every month? Or do you trust God? Do you trust that, that, that EBT card? Do you trust that uh, SSI check? Do you trust your retirement fund? Do you trust your paycheck and your job? Do you trust the go- an American government? <laughs> I almost said it without laughing. Do you, trust, do you trust your neighbors? Do you trust your family? then you have every reason to be worried. <laughs> Let me assure you. But if you trust the Lord of hosts, the God Almighty, the One who reigns forevermore, the Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, the God above all gods, then why do you fret? And why do you worry? These Dagon priests... I guess they called him Dagon because they go, Daggone, look what happened. I guess they walked in. That's where we get the phrase from. I don't know. I just came up with that. Hey, I'm doing good tonight. But we see here that the priests jump over the threshing floor up there when they enter the temple to this day. Instead of repenting, they add superstition. Uh, people do superstition still. There's actually people in our community who think their name is on our roll. So they're going to go to heaven. <laughs> I seen the roll. I ain't seen the people. <laughs> oh, uh, I seen the roll. I seen some of the people who are members of Riverside and other churches who are living by podcast. That's not a pre-qualification to get to heaven. The pre-qualification to get to heaven is to be a sinner, and we all are pre-qualified. Amen. But it's only by the blood of Jesus and living. And honoring and being a disciple of Christ. Jesus tells us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you adhere to God, honor Him and follow Him, then you trust in what He's done. But then you're not guilt-free and you're not, it's not that you're not required to do anything. God has put indicatives on us. He's told us what we are supposed to do. But the problem is, we ignore those things. What are you saying, preacher? 
I'm saying that people put superstition in their life, believing and self-deceiving that that's the way they're going to heaven because they're good people. There's good people in hell. Did y'all know that? People who don't cuss, who don't lie, who don't even drink caffeine. Mm. People who recycle still go to hell. People who are part of a denomination. People whose names are on church rolls. Who's got a wanna pins. Who's gone to every Sunday school there has been since it was established. There are people who are founding members of churches who are in hell because that's not what saves you. Trusting in Christ and His work alone is what saves you. So the superstition here is that the people of Dagon's religion do not even walk on the threshold. I want to make sure, Riverside, that there's no superstition living in you. Yes, we we know our traditions. But superstition is something that's totally different. Your superstition is something that you believe, that you, uh, that you trust and believe that if I do this, this will happen. There's even this thing called karma. It's huge now. People say, if you do good things, good things will come to you. Karma is not true. Because there was one person who did good all the time and the worst thing possible happened to him. And that was Jesus. And he even volunteered for it. Jesus was holy and without blame and kind and good. And they crucified him. And he died a sinner's death. And here I am, a sinner. A rebellious sinner before God. And he showed grace towards me. That ain't karma. That ain't do good and good to come to you. Jesus forgives sinners because that's all there is. Don't believe superstition. Don't believe those little adages and lies. Believe that Jesus died for rotten, stinking people because that's all there is. And it's only because of Him that we're saved. I can't stay here on superstition and I, but if you've got any questions about superstition, am I believing this correctly? If I, if I look into the fiber of what you believe, the DNA, the very marrow of what you believe, and root it out and trust solely in Christ and what He has done for you. It's not... Y'all remember in school whenever we would get progress reports and report cards? You'll get a... F, or I got mostly Fs, especially in math. And you'll get satisfactory or you're failing or you're doing C. and It's performance. How well can you do this? Christianity is not a performance-based relationship with God. It's not how well are you doing. Are you coming to church every week? Are you, are you tithing? Are you, are you being nice to everybody? Are you doing the golden rule? Are you getting A's across the board? No, we're all failing. We've all failed God. There is none without sin. No, not one is what the Bible tells us. All have fallen before God. All has gone astray. And you're only saved by the work and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. Only because of Jesus. See, that's going to comfort somebody tonight to know that you're only saved by what Jesus has done, not what you do. Bye-bye superstition. Somebody that's washing over you right now and saying, man, that's so good. That is so good to me. I know I'm a failure. I know I'm a sinner. I sinned greatly before God. And if He forgives me, oh, that's wonderful. I'm going to sleep good tonight, preacher. I'm going to know that I can walk out of here forgiven of all my sins. And when I'm forgiven in such a way, when I walk out of that door, that doesn't make me want to sin anymore, to be honest with you. He forgave such great sins. Why would I go do them again? 
But if you're not truly converted, you're superstitious. You'll use Jesus as a get-out-of-hell-free card. You'll pull that card out and say, yeah, like the Monopoly game, whenever you get that get-out-of-jail-free card, you'll just use that. Hey, I'm a Christian. I can sit all I want. No, when you truly love Christ, you'll love Him above all other things, even your sins. Jesus saves you from hell, and He also saves you from sin. You no longer delight in sin. You no longer pursue sin. You pursue Christ above everything else. Bye-bye superstition. Let's not dwell here. In verse number 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both, both Ashdod and its territory. But we always know that God is kind and gentle. Well, you've not been reading your Bible. God is a God of wrath, most importantly. You might read it and say, well, that ain't fair. God's striking these innocent people. They're not innocent. They're idol worshippers, blasphemers before God, and everything else that comes along with that. Whenever God is not on the throne of a person's heart, it's open season. Anything goes. You can even choose your gender. When you say, I'm no longer a man or a woman, I self-declare myself as a, a kitty cat or an Apache helicopter. I'm a hamster. I'm a six-year-old little girl in this body, trapped in a man's body. You're self-declaring yourself. That's the greatest rebellion before God that there is. Don't you understand? Because God told Moses, I am that I am. God is the only one who declares anything. And here you are, His creation, saying, no, I'm this. I'm going to be what I want to be. Rebellion against God. But here, God strikes them with tumors. And the territory, that He caused them to be terrified and afflicted. Anytime we read in our Bible where God afflicts terror or His wrath comes along people, we always, we always fall on the side of the people who are being attacked by God because that's our nature. We're sinful. Oh man, He burned down Sodom and Gomorrah. Man, God is mean. Oh, well, we don't read where they were raping people in the street. Bestiality was rampant. Pornography reigned. Sickness and anger and bitterness reigned over people's hearts. He had to burn it down for the sake of the territory. God is holy and we are not. We always side with the villains in the Bible. Here God is holy and the enemies of God are now being faced with the afflictions of God with tumors that formed on their bodies. And they were also terrified. In verse 7, Then the men of Ashtod saw how God, how things were and said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for His hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. This ark has got to go. It's got to go. It's messing up our idol. Our economy's wrecked. We're all under quarantine. Everybody's walking around with tumors. It's got to go. It's too holy. In verse 8, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. Now remember Gath? Everybody knows Gath, of course. Let me, let me jar your memory. This is where Goliath is from. The land of the giants. If anybody can wrestle God into submission, it has to be the strongest of us. It has to be Goliath and his clan. The land of giants. Send God there. We'll put him in his place. That's what the Philistines thought. 
So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of God was against the city, causing a very great panic. And He afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Here, God wrestled the giants down to their knees. Notice as young and old, all the men, all the mighty men of war, were brought low before a mighty God. You know, God does that. No matter how strong you are or how mighty you are, let me assure you, He's still mightier, still grand, still in control. Men walk and strut around their homes as they're the king of their domain. But there is one above all, a name above every name. Even Donald Trump, Joe Biden, anybody you can conjure up, Gandhi, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., and Martin Luther, John Knox, these great men of history, there's still a name above all of them and He reigns forevermore. These men of Gath are brought low, brought down into the ashes. When there's tumors forming over your body that He biologically knitted together, He is God over even the pagan and the Christian. He is God. We see how He's dealt with His people in the previous chapters and how they ignored Him. And now He's in enemy territory. And now He's receiving glory even in the affliction of the wicked. He didn't receive any glory when He was in the boundaries of Israel. For they didn't pay homage to Him and honor Him. So He goes into the enemy territory and He inflicts wrath on the enemies of God, the pagans. And He receives glory. Know this, in your life God will always receive glory. Whether you acknowledge Him or not. For the atheist who shakes his fist at God and hates Him and ignores Him, He will receive glory. To the person who's here today, who's broken, who's a sinner, who's a blatant sinner before God, blasphemer, a thief and a murderer, an adulterer of heart, homosexual and heterosexual, it don't really matter, who drags God's holy name through the mud with blasphemy, who dishonored the Sabbath day, who worship idols, that person who's here today, who repents and says, God, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me thoroughly. I'm stained. I can't run and work as hard enough to clean my past up. Lord, I'm depending on Your work to qualify me for heaven. God will receive glory in that instance. As well as the atheist who shakes his fist up and lives in a such a way that there is no God. Why he knows in his conscience that he smothers and presses down his conscience all his days. When he dies and goes to hell, God receives glory. How does he receive glory in that? It shows that he's holy, righteous, and good. By punishing the sinner. And it shows that He's full of mercy, grace, and forgiveness by showing and extending grace for the sinner. God will receive glory in your life. Here, the Philistines are magnifying the name of the Lord. And even if it's in terror, with tears and fear, they know that God is holy. Does He have to send afflictions your way to get credit? Does He have to crush you until you fall to your knees to say there is a God and He reigns forevermore? Or does He prosper you? Does He protect you and keep you? Usually it's the latter. 
Usually we get so full of ourselves believing that we have accomplished, we have arrived, we did all these things, we ran and made the grind and we accumulated all this wealth and prosperity. It was us. We're the secret sauce. We're the ones that did it. God will receive glory even in your life. Will you pay homage to Him and consider Him precious above money, status, Precious above wealth, health, and prosperity. Give me Jesus, preacher. Here we see that in Gath, the land of the giants, they're wrestled down into the dust. Both young and old, the tumors broke out on them. Now we got to get this ark out of town. In verse 10, so they sent the ark to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron came out. They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They meet them outside of the gates and say, hey, you can't bring that in here. For that ark is holy. And you've got to realize we're not. We heard what happened to the other cities. Nah, you can't come in here. Remember, the ark is God's presence. I wonder if the ark showed up at your house, at your front stoop, at your front door. The priest of God knock on the door. You open the door. Hey, we want to leave the ark here for a little while. No, you can't leave the ark here. No, you can't. No, it'll get in front of my TV. I can't watch what I want because it's blasphemous. It might bother God. My computer has a, a browser on it and a browser is used to go to websites and it's full of wickedness and blasphemy and pornography. Things that I would never want God to see. No, you can't bring it into my kitchen. I got so much beer in my refrigerator, I don't have room for the ark. You can't go in my bedroom because I have a long line of people who come and go in there at night with me. The ark can't stay here. Go on down the road. Go to the next household. Go to the next church member. For that's holy and I am not. If you turn away the ark tonight, don't get me wrong, I know we're not perfect and we're sinful. Or would you open wide the door and say, God, bring your presence into my home. It's all in the posture of your heart tonight. Will you turn away the presence of God? Or will you open wide the door and give it the best room in the house? Here, set it up here. Here in the foyer, here in the living room, here in the family, here in the, in the diner. I want everybody to see it when they come in. And know that the presence of God is felt here. Would you tuck it away in the garage behind that lawnmower that don't run? Throw the old drape over it. Put it in a dusty attic or in the basement. Put it around back and don't even take it in the house. Leave it in the yard. What would you do with the ark of God? Well, what you do with the presence of God lets me know if you're an enemy of God or you're His child. Do you belong to Him? Does He possess you? Does He keep you? Or is He against you? This is a little simple analogy and it reveals your heart. Where are you? Are you in the family of God? Are you an enemy of God? They're trying to deal what to do with this ark, the presence of God. You can't stay here. Keep on rolling. Kick rocks. Get on down the road. We don't want that here. Here, 
They say that the ark of God came to kill us. Notice in Deuteronomy we read that God will prosper His people. He will defend their borders. He will go before them and be their rear guard. He will watch over them as a shepherd over the flock. But here, they know they're the enemy of God. That God wants to kill us. That's the thing about your conscience. It always gives you away. If you believe you're an enemy of God and God's out to get you, then something's wrong. You've heard me talk about pain as an indicator that something's wrong. Whenever your knee blows up and it's full of swelling and fluid, you'll know that's the natural biological way that the body takes care of joints and it tries to cushion that, that joint to make sure it heals. And we take ibuprofen to make sure it dies down until we're able to move. I understand I hate pain more than any of y'all. But pain's a good indicator that something's wrong. And if your conscience is in pain tonight, something's wrong. Come to the great physician. God, I want to make sure I'm on right terms with you. What the preacher is saying is very convicting. I want to make sure that we're on good terms. We're good, God. Oh, my, my life is open to your presence. Come in. Any room you want. Live in my life that I might live. Amen. I know it's Wednesday, but I didn't get to preach Sunday. So y'all getting a double barrel tonight. <laughs> I hope y'all enjoy hearing this as much as I'm able to preach it. Y'all think I'm just yelling up here, but I, I enjoy I love this. <laughs> this is the best part of my job. It's not the only part of my job, but this is one of the best parts. Uh, another good part is sitting with those who are on the bed of affliction, holding a hand of a saint who's on the last few days of their life and telling them, hey, when you close your eyes, you'll be on the other side of eternity and you'll see Jesus face to face. Oh, that's fun. Or going to see a widow whose heart's broken or, or calling somebody whose heart's low. Those are good, but this is really fun too. That's just a little window in the life of a preacher. But let's continue here. They came and said, you can't bring that in here. Verse 11. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the Lord and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there are a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the people who did not die were struck with tumors and they cried of the city went up to heaven. You notice in verse 12 that the cry of the city went up to heaven. That's the first time we hear of heaven here in this chapter. But who heard them in heaven? Was it Dagon? No, Dagon was laying in the dust with his hands cut off in his head, removed from his torso. So the cry went up to heaven. Now, Theologians and commentaries argue that they heard the cries from afar off from the city. That the people were moaning and groaning. I don't know if you've ever been that kind of pain before where you groan and moan. I know I have. But they cry out with a loud, oh, a moan and a groan. And it went up into the heavens and also in the local territory. They heard the moaning and the groaning of the afflictions of that city. And it went up to heaven. That means God heard the moan and the groan. Didn't I tell you earlier in this chapter that God will receive glory? Either in the morning, I don't get me wrong, I've woke up in the morning and pulled the covers back and said, Oh Lord, because I had to get up or something wasn't working quite right. A joint wasn't working right. A back won't tied or it was tied or it was knotted or something was wrong because our bodies even though we're outside decaying and falling apart maybe you pull back the cover and said oh Lord oh Lord or pull back the cover and say thank you Lord 
God will receive glory in your life. He will be mentioned somehow or the other. Either you will shake your fist up at heaven and blaspheme His holy name and blame Him for all your troubles and trials. Or that fist will be opened and it'll be lifted up to the Lord of hosts and say, God, it's only because of your grace and mercy I'm able to stand today. When the covers come back, instead of, oh Lord, it could be, oh Lord. The greatest gifts I opened today were my two eyes. Oh, and it's by your grace that you have sustained me as I slept through the night. Only by your mercy do you allow air to enter my lungs and exhale. For the same God gives you grace today to breathe and bless His name, will also give breath to the atheist who will blaspheme His name that day. He's a merciful and kind God. But rest assured, He will receive glory. Here, they raise up to the heavens with their moans. Oh, the tumors! The afflictions, and even in chapter 6, we see where their cities are infested with rats. I don't know if you watch the news, but over in Australia, they're having a biblical plague in Australia. I say biblical because they showed the footage of mice just destroying crops. The the farmers are uh, flabbergasted. They can't believe it that something like this has happened. That they're being ate from the inside out by mice. Well, we also see that in chapter 6. That God affects affects their bodies, but also their prosperity. He takes it all from them to show them that Dagon is not their God. But nowhere do we read from here on that they repent and trust in God. For there are those who will not trust God even if He knocked on their door at their house tonight and said, Hey, I'm God. They wouldn't believe it. No matter if the sky rolled back and He stood there in all His glory, they would still not worship Him. Where do you find yourself tonight? You find yourself as a practical atheist, someone who says, Well, I'm a Christian in name only, but I don't really pray. I don't really read my Bible. I'm kind of neutral about God. I could take Him or leave Him. He's alright. He's good. I mean, he's okay. I like to go on Sunday sometimes and Wednesday once in a while. Oh, I really like to go when they're eating. Oh, them Baptists can cook. I really like to go when there's a singing. But God's okay. I mean, I don't read my Bible. I mean, I got Netflix. Who needs a Bible? I can fill my days with podcasts. I can watch stories on ABC, NBC. I can watch all kinds of soap operas. I'm busy. I got a job. I got to raise my family. There's stuff to do. Practical atheism. But I want to remind you that God will receive glory in your life. Either by a moan. Oh, oh, God, my body is falling. Oh, my prosperity is gone. I'm ruined. Or by a praise. God, I praise you. For you keep me and you hold me. You had every means to kill me in my sleep, but yet you still stirred me awake. Even when I fell, Lord, you lift me up. Lord, you set my feet on solid ground. Lord, I'm not perfect. You know that. And I slip and fall and I sin against you. But you showed me forgiveness and mercy. Lord, my rap sheet is as long as my arm in heaven. I sinned greatly against you. But yet you still call me your child. Y'all know I got two little boys, and I love them dearly. I love your kids too, don't worry, but it's a different kind of love for my babies. And I know it's true for you, grandparents. You got some precious children. 
You might like children, but there's something particular about your children. I understand, believe me. They might come over, my children go to your house and break your windows, set your house on fire. You might be mad, one third of the full extent of the law at them and have them locked up. They don't devious children. They kick my dog or whatever. But if you're like me, you'll find mercy and grace extended to your own child, no matter what they do. You say, well, that's still my child. I know they're wrong and they've done some stuff that's bad. I still love them. Don't tell me you don't. But God looks at His children the same way. It's different with the Philistines. They don't love Him. They're His enemies. But when Christ has arrested you and saved you and adopted you in, you belong to God. You're His child. Do you not understand? When you're first saved, it's a judicial salvation. You're justified before God. And then when you sin later, because you will, you will sin. Let's be honest. That's why the preacher says, when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. And when you repent... You're not getting re-saved. Didn't y'all remember when, uh, not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, that God is not taking Jesus and crucifying Him all over again? That Christ is crucified once for sinners. That sin is done. You're forgiven. So when you sin, you're not getting re-saved, Christian. You're getting a parental repentance. Before it's judicial repentance. It's a legal term. You're justified. But once you belong to the family, you come and you ask for forgiveness. Nothing like a good and holy father who forgives his kid to strike you to the heart and say, I want to serve a God like that. A God who forgives sinners. He doesn't kick me out of the family. He don't cut me off. He forgives me. To help you understand Noah's ark. When Noah built the ark, he went inside the ark. And it flooded the earth and he was inside the ark, safe and sound. But I'm sure while he was in the ark, the waves crashed on the ark and he might have stumbled and fell on the ground. But notice he didn't fall out of the ark. He was still in the ark. Christian, you are in Christ. He doesn't kick you out of Christ when you sin. He forgives you and He keeps you. Somebody, that's really good news for you. Because He saved you and He keeps you and He holds you. He is your Father and Christ is your Shepherd. Oh, that's really good news, preacher. That I don't keep myself saved. And that He'll, keep, he'll get glory in this life. Either by my destruction or my glorification. God alone receives the glory. Thank you, preacher, for telling me that. Thank you for letting me know that I don't have to get all re-saved, reintroduced to the family. That He saved me and He keeps me. I don't know how you did your kids or do your kids, but I like to take care of them, feed them, house them, and our God does the same. And when we mess up, we have an advocate. A defender. A, a one who watches over us. Who's a strong tower. A refuge. A place to run to. Here God deals with the enemies of God. 
And he deals with his own people in such a way that caused them to reach revival. And we'll read that in chapter number 7. But for now, what you can walk away with is that God is in the heavens and he will receive glory in this life. Recount what the preacher said tonight. If he shows up at your house with the ark, Will you invite Him in or turn Him away? Because your life is just too dirty and you don't want it revealed to God. But let me remind you also, He's in the heavens and He sees everything. So you're not hiding anything from God. He sees. On that being known, repent. Repent before a holy God. And trust in His parental righteousness to forgive you and to keep you. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You tonight that we...